This is a work of fiction. Honest. Ragbag presents Endless Impossible, written and performed by Frank Burton. Endless Impossible will also be available as a book, the fourth in the Ragbag series. Buy a copy for each of your friends. You'll be the talk of the town. Later on, we'll enter the footnotes section. That's the optional extra content for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. Let's continue with Endless Impossible. The following week passed quickly enough. I spent most of my time working. Dennis went back to his research. A few days before we were due to travel down to Devon, we arranged to meet up in the bookshop. Dennis arrived in his massive trench coat despite the blazing sunshine that afternoon. What's new? I said. Hello, Frank, he said with a smile. And hello, Vanessa. Hi, said Vanessa, not seeming particularly pleased about our choice of meeting place. Hello, Dennis, I said politely. What's going on? Well, I've uncovered a new piece of the puzzle. It turns out this place we're travelling to on Saturday is a former church. There's tons of these places around, of course. Churches reopening as shops and cafes. A sign of the times, I suppose. This one hasn't been converted into anything. It's been privately owned for a decade, just standing there empty. I checked the land registry. It's owned by a company based overseas. Try as I might, I can't find any public record of who owns this company or why they chose to buy this empty church and leave it standing there untouched. Any idea what Miss Angel's connection is to the building? I don't know, said Dennis. But it wouldn't surprise me if the mysterious owner turns out to be her. Look at this. He fished a folded sheet of paper from his pocket. Tell me this isn't her doing. I unfolded the paper and stared at the image. What is it? I said. The company logo. An equilateral triangle. That's Miss Angel's thing, right? Who is this Miss Angel you keep talking about? said Vanessa. My old school teacher, I said. I don't think I ever got round to telling you the story. She's... Vanessa stood up straight and looked right at me. A school teacher, she said, and her name's Miss Angel. She was a school teacher, I said. She sells solar panels now. Solar panels, said Vanessa. I see. I'm not sure if I want to hear your reply to this, Frank, but do you mind telling me Miss Angel's first name? I don't have to tell you, I said. It's Eileen, said Dennis, eagerly watching Vanessa's face. Vanessa covered her eyes for a moment. My God, she said. I knew I'd end up hearing that name again one of these days. What's she gone and done? You know Eileen Angel, Dennis squeaked. Yes, so what's she done? Why are you guys investigating her? It's not so much what she's done as what she's going to do, I said. We think she might be setting herself up as a kind of saviour of mankind or something. A cult leader? Possibly. Vanessa covered her eyes again. Christ, I knew something wasn't right. What happened? said Dennis. How do you know her? I don't exactly know her personally. She was a customer years ago. In the bookshop, I said. This isn't a bookshop, Frank, as you know. I took a breath as the penny dropped. Miss Angel paid Vanessa to change her identity. In a way, it was hardly surprising. 
It had been obvious from day one Miss Angel was using a pseudonym. I'd always assumed she'd changed her name by deed poll or something. But Vanessa's service was more than just a change of a person's name. I had no idea how it was done, and still don't, but Vanessa was capable of creating a whole new person out of nothing. She was one of my first customers, in fact, Vanessa continued. I hadn't quite figured out my vetting procedure at that point. At that time, I was just pleased that my scheme was starting to work. I had no idea how Eileen found out about me, but she knew the password. Bermondsey, I exclaimed. Shh, Vanessa hissed back at me. Sorry, I said. We met her the other day, you see. I just realised why she seemed a little startled when we mentioned Bermondsey. It had been puzzling me a bit. You mentioned Bermondsey. Not the password, I said quietly. The place. It came up in conversation. As I was saying, said Vanessa, she came here. She wanted a new identity and wouldn't say why. There's more to it than that. I'm not even sure if I should tell you. I'm not supposed to discuss these things with anyone, but in this case... In this case, we are dealing with a very dangerous woman, said Dennis firmly. If there's anything you can tell us that'll help us expose her for who she is... As a matter of fact, you could tell us exactly who she is. What's her real name? Vanessa shook her head. This is important, Dennis persisted. I know, she said. I'd tell you if I could. I can't remember it. You don't have a record of it? Of course I don't, she snapped. I'm a professional fraudster, not Barclays Bank. And you definitely don't recall it? I haven't even thought of her for years. The name is completely gone, but the other names, they... Other names. Shh, she said, reaching beneath her counter for a paper and pen. I need total silence in the shop for a while, please. Go and read a book or something. Just don't disturb me. The two of us did as we were told. I went for a stretch out on my rocking chair. Dennis went for a walk along the street. When he returned five minutes later, Vanessa presented him with a scrap of paper. I came over to look. Dennis read the names aloud. Ellen Moon, Leanne Skye, Ashlyn Craft, Lynn Heaven. He repeated them thoughtfully. Ellen Moon, Leanne Skye, Ashlyn Craft, Lynn Heaven. So these are like a first draft, I said. The name she jotted down before settling on Eileen Angel. I see what she's doing, said Dennis. They all have the same pattern, a surname relating to the skies or space or the heavens, and a first name that sounds a bit like alien. It's not a first draft, Vanessa cut in. Those are her four other names. Dennis and I exchanged a confused face pull. Her what? I said. This is partly why I was so pleased with our exchange at the time. In the back of my mind I knew it would lead to trouble, but the money was too much to decline. She paid me five times my usual rate. Why would she do that? To cover the expense of her five new identities, Vanessa explained patiently. Ellen Moon, Leanne Skye, Ashlyn Craft, Lynn Heaven and Eileen Angel. Five birth certificates, five passports, five national insurance numbers, the works. You can do that, said Dennis. I thought you knew all about it, she said. National insurance numbers. You can't just... Magic new ones out of thin air, said Vanessa. It's possible, believe you me. Eileen Angel paid for five. What she's done with them is anyone's guess, but... God, I wish I could remember her real name. 
She didn't let anything slip, said Dennis. Like what she intended to do with her five new identities. She knew what she was doing, said Vanessa. She didn't tell me a thing. Dennis was pacing around the tiny amount of floor space that was available to him like a caged bird. He was wheezing a little. He reached for his cigarettes. Thank you, Vanessa, he said. You've made the job of researching this woman five times more time-consuming, but this is what needs to be done. I'd better be off, Frank. This is going to take some doing. Would you care to join me? I don't need help as such. It might just be useful for you to see how all this dirt digging is done. I'd love to, I said. I've got to work soon. In that case, I will see you bright and early on Saturday. It's a long drive. I'll collect you at 6am sharp. Make sure you're ready. I wouldn't miss it for the world, I said. When he'd gone, I looked down at my hands and realised I was still clutching the printed-out image of an orange equilateral triangle. I said I wouldn't miss it for the world, and I meant it. I'd taken four days off work to cover the day out, plus any additional time we might need afterwards. We'd have to stay overnight on the Saturday, at least. Devon was too far to be there and back in a day. I wondered if Miss Angel had chosen Devon as a location simply because it rhymed with one of her aliases. On the Friday afternoon, I called into Vanessa's shop, mostly just to see how she was doing after all that commotion earlier in the week. Vanessa wasn't in the mood for talking, so I skimmed through a novel in my rocking chair for a while. The shelves seemed a little tidier than usual. On my way out of the door, I said, See you later. I'll hopefully be seeing Miss Angel tomorrow. I'll send her your regards. Ah, said Vanessa, without a trace of humour. Or at least, she added, I hope you're joking. Of course, I said. I wouldn't want to get you roped into all this. I already am, unfortunately, she said. I stopped walking through the door, returning to the shop. How do you mean? I said. I mean, I've revealed things I really shouldn't have. Now your friend Dennis has run off with my supposedly protected information and is using it to expose one of my customers. I can hardly ask him not to. He's doing the right thing, after all. I'm sure this is a noble cause and Eileen Angel needs to be properly challenged, arrested even, I don't know. Unfortunately, if this information goes public, there's a real possibility that my little business here will be exposed too. We don't need to mention you, I said. Maybe you should, said Vanessa. You have that list of names. You could present Eileen Angel's followers with it. You wouldn't need to mention my name. Miss Angel would know, though, wouldn't she? I said. As far as she's concerned, there's only one person we could have got that list of names from. Vanessa shrugged. What's she going to do? Ask for a refund? I see what you mean. It's not Eileen that concerns me, she said. It's your friend Dennis. I'm not sure that I like him. Why not? Can't say why exactly. I'm just not sure you can trust him, Frank, that's all. I don't feel that way, I said, but I appreciate you looking out for me. I could be wrong, she said. It's a hunch. Just be careful on this trip of yours. I will, I said. Thanks. I turned to leave again. Then I turned back one more time. I hadn't noticed before, but Vanessa was wearing a black dress with a denim jacket over the top. What happened to your tracksuit? I said. It was time for a change, she said. You look good, I said. Thanks, Frank. I walked out, feeling good to have paid Vanessa the compliment. 
I didn't mean it in any kind of flirtatious way. She was my mum's age, and I didn't think of her like that. A couple of blocks later, a voice across the street called my name. I turned to see my two friends from the bus depot, Johnny and Marcy, dressed up for a night out. Hey, I called, jogging across the street to join them. You guys off to work dressed like that? We called in sick, Johnny grinned. Can't be working on a Friday night, man. What are you doing? Just on my way home. You're not, Marcy declared. You're coming with us. I held my breath to prevent myself audibly gasping. Are you okay? said Johnny. I'm good, I said. Not sure if I'm dressed for it. You look fine, man. What else are you going to do if you don't come out? Nothing. I actually have plans tomorrow morning, but... Might as well stay up all night then. Come clubbing. Clubbing? I repeated as though it was an alien word, then covered myself by adding a casual... Awesome. I'd never been to a nightclub before. I'd never even ordered a drink in a bar. I tried alcohol briefly one evening at the age of 12 when I took a secret sip of my mum's gin just to see what it was like. I wasn't a fan at the time. Maybe I should give it another go. Well, there was nothing else for it. I had to. I had money in my pocket. I finally had some cool friends my own age. And sure, I had to travel to Devon with Dennis in the morning, but I wouldn't have slept anyway. My body clock was set to night shifts. We took a bus into the city centre and crammed ourselves into a crowded bar. The music was a bit too loud, but I liked it, as predictable as it was. Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, The Smiths, Oasis, bands whose members were born a stone's throw from the venue itself. It wasn't the most inclusive playlist, but hearing these songs in this context awoke a dormant sense of pride in the city I grew up in. I was a couple of years away from being able to legally drink. Luckily, I was six feet tall with facial hair and a look of maturity beyond my years. Also, it was the 1990s and no one really cared if a 16-year-old was served alcohol. I bought myself a pint of beer, which didn't taste as bad as it smelt. Johnny bought us all a round of tequilas to top it off. I knocked it back, concealing my revulsion as I slapped the glass on the table. A couple of seconds later, a rushing sensation darted from my gut to my head. For a moment, I thought I was going to throw up. Thankfully, I didn't. Instead, I said, I'll take another one of those. Coming right up, said Johnny. Four tequilas later, we hit the dance floor. I'd never been on a dance floor before either, although I'd danced many times on my bedroom carpet. I had no idea what my moves looked like to other people, but I was drunk and I didn't care. I spotted a few locals nodding in my direction with some amusement, which didn't put me off for a moment. My arms were in the air, my lips were mouthing the words to Kinky Afro, and God knows what my feet were doing, but man, they were enjoying themselves. We stumbled into the street. The warm August air surprised me. I'd been expecting it to be the middle of a night already, but on inspecting my watch it turned out to be 6.30 in the evening. I followed my friends to the next bar, house music this time. I ordered another pint of beer. I was developing a taste for it now. I would have liked to have had more of a conversation with my new friends, but it was too loud to hear what anyone was saying. I drank instead. I ordered another beer, plus another round of tequilas. Frank, you are hardcore! Marcy declared as I arrived with the drinks. I assume this was a good thing. We knocked the tequilas back and got up to dance. One of the bar staff came over and politely requested that we get down off the tables. We did so. 
Johnny made a square symbol with his fingers, a gesture I'd never seen before, but thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen. We did another round of shots. The place started filling up. We formed our own dance floor in the middle of the room, and a few bystanders joined in. I closed my eyes, feeling the bass tingling through my body as it moved. The beats were hypnotising me. Suddenly, I felt a sense of connection to everyone in the room. I didn't know who any of these people were, but at that moment in time they were all family. Somehow, at the same time, I felt an equal sense of disconnection to my surroundings, as though the music were playing just for me. It's a shame all these people will never get to hear all these thoughts, I reflected. It's a shame I can't hear their thoughts either. Wouldn't that be something? Obviously, they'd have to share their thoughts with me one at a time, and maybe not all their thoughts are worth sharing, but you know what? I think every person in this room would have something original to say, given the opportunity. My eyes snapped open. I ran to the toilets and vomited violently. I stepped outside for some fresh air. The breeze felt refreshing. I threw up against a lamppost. I checked my watch. It was 7.30pm. We'd had a good warm-up, but sadly I had no chance of making it to the club. I needed to lie down. I was too embarrassed to return to the bar and apologise to my friends for leaving early. I'd catch up with them at work and explain the whole thing. As it happened, I never saw either of them again. They were sacked for not showing up for their shift and I didn't have either of their numbers, so that was that. I managed to make it home without vomiting again. I fell into bed, instantly unconscious. Early the next day, I was vaguely aware of someone knocking on the front door. They knocked a few times, waited a minute, then knocked again. When no one came to the door, they tried the bell. I was still half asleep when my mum called through the bathroom window. What do you want? Dennis's voice echoed up from outside. Sorry, madam, wrong house. I fell asleep again. I found a slip of paper on the doormat the following morning, a handwritten note. It said, Sorry to have missed you, Frank. See you soon. Dennis. I was too ill to feel guilty about standing Dennis up. It was just one of those things, I decided. I'd made the right decision. I was 16. I was supposed to do stupid stuff, wasn't I? My mum was sitting up at the dining table, dipping soldiers into a boiled egg. The sight of it made my stomach turn. Would you like one of these? She asked brightly. No thanks, I said. Eggs are gross. Are they? She said. Tastes perfect to me. That's only because you're not thinking about what you're putting in your mouth. For that matter, don't you think it's weird that we're the only species that drinks another animal's milk? It is rather strange when you put it in those terms, Frank. That being said, I'd prefer cow's milk to human milk on my porridge. Why do you need to drink milk at all? You could live without it. What's brought this on? She said. Sorry, I said. I'm not feeling too well. And everything looks horrible. For a moment I thought you'd turned vegan or something. There's an idea. That's my recollection of the conversation anyway. Maybe I didn't actually say any of this stuff out loud. The fact is I've been vegan since then. So there you have it. Some people opt for a plant-based diet because they want to save the planet. For me it's more of a habit prompted by the sight of my mum's breakfast while I was hung over. By the way, I added, was there a man knocking at the door at six o'clock this morning? There was, she said. It was probably one of your dad's friends. It wouldn't be the first time one of them have 
arrived unannounced at a peculiar hour. What did he want? Oh, he saw me looking at him through the window and claimed he'd come to the wrong house. The last one tried the same trick as it happens. So, you saw the man's face, I said. Why are you so interested, Frank? I'm just curious. Yes, I saw him, and he left. That's all there is to it. Did he look upset? Not particularly. OK. My job at the bus depot finished the following week. I started college the week after that. I kept my head down, studied hard, didn't socialise much, tried to write as much as I could, stayed away from booze. With all of this other stuff going on, I mostly forgot about our mission to expose Miss Angel. I waited patiently for Dennis to call or write. Another couple of weeks went by. I wondered if he'd gone back to London when his trip to that church in Devon was finished. It would make sense for him to do so. That's where he lived, after all. I tried calling every couple of days, but his number just rang out each time. I wondered if he'd contacted Vanessa, following up on the information she'd given him. One afternoon after college, I visited the bookshop, only to find the place closed. The books sign above the door had been taken down. I pressed my face up to the window. The whole place had been cleared out, leaving a bare carpet and Vanessa's old wooden counter with no one sitting behind it. I stood there for a while, just staring through the window, trying to make some sense of it all. It made perfect sense, of course. I sat down on the pavement beside the doorway, covered my eyes and silently wept for a while. I wasn't expecting to cry. I hadn't realised until this moment how important this place was to me, how important she was. If you stood back and observed our behaviour, it hardly seemed like friendship at all. We didn't really know anything about each other. We hardly spoke. I didn't even know her surname. I don't think I ever told her mine. Nonetheless, Vanessa was the best friend I ever had. Twenty-seven years later, as I sit and write these words, I can still feel that sense of loss like a persistent echo in my chest. I hope she's out there somewhere, doing whatever it is that makes her happy. I guess she might be retired now, or working a regular job. Maybe our paths will cross again one day, and we'll respectfully ignore each other. She'll have a different name, of course. I won't be shouting Bermondsey across the street. I wouldn't want to blow her cover again. Maybe, wherever she is, she's tracked me down and is slowly working her way through the ragbag books. Vanessa, if you're listening to these words, I hope you understand that I never meant to cause you the aggravation of having to close your shop down and move to a different city or wherever it is you went. I'd like to say thank you for the time we spent together. I didn't appreciate it as a kid, and I didn't appreciate the fact that there aren't that many people in the world like you. I kind of assume there are at least one of you in every town. I've been to a lot of towns in my time, and it turns out there isn't. Most people are just normal. And who wants that, really? I realise I'm just saying these words to myself, Vanessa. This is just my way of processing it, I suppose. You said so yourself. You were never a fan of books.
I kept trying Dennis's phone, but still no reply. A couple of days after I'd cried in front of the bookshop, I wrote him a letter. Dear Dennis, I'm currently listening to Emperor Tomato Ketchup by Stereolab, which gets my vote for album of 1996 so far. Obviously, I haven't listened to all of the albums because that would take some time and would also be quite expensive. I got this one on cassette, which is £3 cheaper than the compact disc. In any case, I don't have a compact disc player. I'm sorry I wasn't able to come with you as we'd planned. I'd been looking forward to it so much. I hope you're not ignoring me because I upset you or anything. In case you're not aware already, I'd like you to know that you're very important to me, and so is our investigation. Speaking of which, I hope it's going well. I look forward to hearing about the progress you've made in my absence. In other news, I've started doing my A-levels now, and Vanessa has disappeared. I mean, the bookshop has closed down all of a sudden. Just so you know, I hold myself entirely responsible, and don't blame you for anything. Anyway, I do think that you would enjoy this album that I'm listening to. I never got around to asking you what kind of music you like. I'll make sure to talk to you about it when we see each other next, whenever that may be. Bye for now. Frank. A couple more weeks passed. No reply to my letter, and I had given up trying to call. One night while I was lying in bed, I started wondering if something really bad had happened. Until this point, I'd managed to block these fears out. As far as I knew, Dennis had travelled to a former church building in Devon to see Miss Angel over a month ago and hadn't returned. Logically, there were two possible outcomes. One, he was still there. Two, he was dead. The trouble was, neither of those outcomes seemed even remotely likely. I was aware that Dennis was fully prepared to go undercover and join Miss Angel's cult, but how could he do that when Miss Angel was fully aware of what Dennis did for a living? Sure, Dennis had the ability to talk people around to his way of thinking. No doubt he could convincingly claim that he'd left his old life behind to follow Miss Angel's teachings or whatever. But surely she wouldn't risk taking him on as a follower. It made no sense for him to be dead either. Miss Angel was capable of many things, but surely murdering a journalist wasn't one of them. The next day, I visited the corner shop on my way into college and picked up four newspapers. The Times, The Daily Telegraph, The Guardian and The Independent. Four publications I remember Dennis mentioning he'd worked for in recent years. The papers were too bulky to fit in my bag, so I tore out the contact page from each and left the rest of them on the bus. During my lunch break, I used a payphone to call each of the papers, inquiring about Dennis's whereabouts. Each call followed a similar pattern. When I asked to speak to the editor, I was told they were busy. When I asked if there was anyone else who could help me contact a journalist named Dennis Gleason, I was told there was no one there of that name. When I told them he worked for the newspaper on a freelance basis, they suggested writing a letter to the editor asking for help. When I asked if they could put me through to someone else, maybe one of the reporters who Dennis may have been in touch with, they told me that wasn't possible. I headed to the college library and wrote four identical letters to the editors of the newspapers I'd called. If only there was some way of contacting Eileen Angel. If anyone knew where Dennis had disappeared to, it would be her. There was a woman working behind the desk in the corner. I guessed she was the librarian. I hadn't had much luck with librarians in the past. Hopefully this one was different. I approached her desk. 
Excuse me, I said. Up close, the librarian reminded me of Vanessa. They were a similar age, they had similar desks, and similar no-nonsense expressions on their faces. The librarian smiled. How can I help? she said. OK, turns out she was nothing like Vanessa. That was fine. I'm doing a research project, I began, and I'm looking for some information. What kind of research project? said the librarian. It's a project about research, I said, so I'm researching, you know, research as a subject. Does that make sense? Perfectly, yes. So, just as an example, there's a company called Equilateral Incorporated. Their logo is an equilateral triangle, an orange one. How would I go about finding out about this company, like where they're based, who owns them, and so on? Very interesting, she said. Your best source of information will be a government department called Company's House. Oh, I cut in, realising I was one step ahead. Dennis had mentioned this part already. They're not registered in the UK, I said. Ah, she said. That makes it a little more complicated. Which country are they registered in? I don't know, I said. No idea, she said. All I have is the name and the logo and the fact that they're not a UK-based company. Oh, and I suppose I have a contact name too, Eileen Angel. Right, said the librarian, tapping on her keyboard. You say their name is Equilateral Industries? Equilateral Incorporated. Right. What are you doing? I asked. The librarian gestured to the empty office chair beside her. Take a seat, she said. I'll show you. I crossed to the other side of the counter, sat down, and stared at the computer screen. Then, in the finest example of good customer service I've ever encountered before or since, the librarian showed me how to use the internet. I told her I had a free period so I could stay for an extra hour. I missed a lesson about Chaucer. Never mind. It seemed like this was more important. At the end of our session, not only had I acquired a new life skill, I also had a vital slice of information. I had the address of the UK branch of Equilateral Incorporated. It was a former village church, a few miles from Newton Abbott, Devon. I wasn't quite sure what to do with this information yet, but it was a start. Maybe I could take a train down there at the weekend, see what was happening for myself. Or maybe I should write Miss Angel a letter. For the time being, I did neither of those things. I posted the letters to the newspaper editors the following morning. When I returned home from college, my dad was on his way out of the house. It was rare to see him there during the day. Hello, Frank, he greeted as he climbed into his car. Got a dash? Hang on, I said. My dad closed the car door and wound his window down. Yep, he said. Can we get a computer, please? Sure, there's a couple of spare ones in the office. I'll bring one back tonight. I'm sure they won't mind. What do you want it for? Oh, you know, research. Oh, I see, he said. Research, sounds good. See you later, Frank. See you later. Thanks, Dad. I posted those letters to the newspapers on my way to college the following day. When I arrived home, I found a brand new PC, plugged in and ready to go on my writing desk. There was even a printer plugged in beside it. I wasn't sure what to do. I sat down and wrote another letter to Dennis. Dear Dennis, I'm typing this letter on my new computer, so hopefully the writing is a little more legible than usual. The librarian at college showed me how to apply for my own email address, so I'll be doing that soon. 
When you're back from wherever it is you've gone, perhaps we can exchange email addresses, which will make written communication easier. I've heard that when you write an email, you don't even need to spell the words correctly, which sounds exciting. Anyway, I hope you turn up soon. I'm getting worried. Bye for now. Frank. Two more weeks passed. I tried calling Dennis again, but the line had been disconnected. I considered calling the police to report him as missing, but I strongly suspected that Dennis wouldn't want me to. I didn't know him well enough to state this categorically, but as far as I was concerned, Dennis never did anything without a good reason. His behaviour may have seemed strange to some. Spending months in the company of the Rainbow Hunters didn't seem like the actions of a rational human being, but Dennis had a good reason for doing it, just as he had a reasonable motive to disappear in the pursuit of his latest story. I'd stated in my last letter that I was worried. I realised at this point that I wasn't. I wasn't concerned for Dennis's safety. I just wanted him to come back and tell me all about his adventures. I suppose I'd just have to wait. A week or so later, one of the newspaper editors gave me a call. He said he knew Dennis very well, and unfortunately he hadn't heard from him lately. Don't worry, I told him. He's away on a job at the moment. I overreacted, I think. Are you sure? the man said. I'm happy to ask around. If any of my colleagues have heard from Mr Gleeson, I'll be sure to let you know. I appreciate it, I said. He's got my number. He'll call when he's ready. Very good, said the man. You're Frank Burton, aren't you? he added. I am, I said. You're the boy who invented Spot the White. Spot the what? It's a game we've been playing in the office for years. You get points every time you spot a transparent alcoholic drink in a film or a TV show. I caught an old episode of Columbo earlier this week in which the murderer's beverage of choice was Chardonnay. I was very pleased. Oh, I mumbled. Yes, uh, that, that was me, I suppose. There's that video of you where you read out that piece you wrote about alcohol on screen. Very impressive for a boy of that age. Obviously you're older now. We play it in the office sometimes. Right, I said weakly. I didn't realise the footage survived. Oh yes, it's very entertaining seeing you stand on top of that washing machine. It's a candy floss maker, I said. I have to go. Thank you for your offer of help. I ended the call and sat down on the couch. Luckily no one was around to witness the glow in my cheeks. In hindsight, I probably should have taken the compliment and demanded the editor take me on as a columnist, the new voice of youth. Instead, I was embarrassed, almost to the point of sickness. If I'm honest, it still makes me cringe. One of these days, that footage is going to end up on YouTube or something, and no doubt a funny video of me as a child will amass more traffic than any content I've created as an adult. I need to have a lie down. In August 1996, around the time Dennis and I had our meeting with Miss Angel, the band Eels released their debut album, Beautiful Freak. I didn't hear it until the following year, when the single Susan's House reached number nine in the UK charts. I absolutely loved that single. It seemed like such an unlikely top ten hit, a brooding spoken word narrative capturing a grim series of snapshots of a troubled neighbourhood Images that represented a wider decay within US society. I wrote Dennis a long letter outlining the song's virtues. And because I wrote it on my computer, I still have a copy. I won't reproduce any of it here. 
Like the song itself, the letter has not aged well. I apologise in advance for critiquing the lyrics of Mark Oliver Everett, E, as he's better known. I'm sure he's not a bad guy. As a matter of fact, I highly recommend his book, Things the Grandkids Should Know. I've probably only read about six or seven musicians' memoirs altogether, so when I tell you that Things the Grandkids Should Know is somewhere in the top three best ones, what I'm really saying is E's autobiography is somewhere in my top 50%. Not as good as Tracy Thorne or Jarvis Cocker, but certainly up there with the sound of life's unspeakable beauty. The reason I'm critiquing Susan's house, which I'm about to do at length, is that I wanted to write something about female stock characters and the way in which male writers routinely portray women. It just so happens that Susan's house contains a wealth of material on this subject. Let's take a look. First verse begins. Going over to Susan's house, walking south down Baxter Street, nothing hiding behind this picket fence. It's going well so far, right? I particularly liked that line, nothing hiding behind this picket fence. My letter to Dennis actually compared this reference to Wordsworth, which probably isn't the best comparison, especially considering the nosedive the song takes at this point. There's a crazy old woman smashing bottles on the sidewalk where her house burnt down two years ago. People say that back then, she really wasn't that crazy. You could say we've learnt everything there is to know about this crazy old woman character in four short lines. House burns down, woman goes mad, smashes bottles in street. There isn't a great deal of depth to the character, but I suppose that's the point. The crazy old woman isn't really a person in her own right. She's a type. She crops up everywhere, usually with a male narrator helpfully diagnosing the source of her distress before moving on to the chorus. Going over to Susan's house. Going over to Susan's house. I can't be alone tonight. We've moved swiftly on to the next key figure, the saint. You know the saint, right? Of course you do. She's all over the place. Miss Honey in Roald Dahl's Matilda. The second verse contains a striking account of a 15-year-old gunshot victim being stripped naked by paramedics. I talked about this in some detail in my letter to Dennis. The second iteration of the chorus features a play on the last line, going over to Susan's house, going over to Susan's house. She's going to make it right. Of course she's going to make it right. She's the saint. That's what the saint does. The song could have ended really nicely at this point. Who needs a third verse anyway? We've built up a solid enough image of E's neighbourhood. We've established there are a large number of nefarious characters lurking on every street corner. I still have a few questions about the crazy old woman's backstory, but let's just let that slide. Seriously, can't any of you name a song in which the third verse adds any real value at all? It's a deviation from the classic song structure. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, done. Nonetheless, E has taken it upon himself to add the following. Here comes a girl with long brown hair, who can't be more than 17. She sucks on a red popsicle while she pushes a baby girl in a pink carriage. And I'm thinking, that must be her sister. That must be her sister, right? See what I mean? Unnecessary. Besides all that, what the actual hell is going on in this man's head? A few breaths ago, he wasn't particularly surprised to see a 15-year-old boy with a bullet in his forehead. Now he appears to be genuinely shocked by the presence of a 17-year-old mother. I don't see why he's so surprised he's encountered the well-worn bad mother trope. 
You know Bad Mother, right? Of course you know Bad Mother. Bad Mother is everywhere. Mrs Wormwood in Roldal's Matilda. By the way, E notes in his memoir that a couple of years after Susan's House came out, he began performing the song live with completely different lyrics, ending on a note of forgiveness. No worries, mate. You're forgiven. We all did some questionable stuff in the 90s. I'm bringing this up because telling this story about Miss Angel has got me thinking about the way I write about women. Miss Angel doesn't conform to any of the Susan's house archetypes. She isn't a crazy old woman. She's certainly not a saint. She doesn't have children, as far as I know. She's a different type of stock character, the femme fatale. As hacky as it sounds, I couldn't write Miss Angel any other way. She's a beautiful woman who uses her looks and charm to manipulate and deceive. Is there any other way of saying it? I have to portray her in this way because that's what Miss Angel is like. I've told you about my mother. I hope that in doing so I haven't inadvertently placed her into one of E's categories. I can't help thinking my portrayal of my mum falls somewhere between crazy old woman and bad mother. For the record, I don't think she's either of those things. She's just another human being. Not good, not evil, just another person doing whatever she can to keep on existing, not contributing a great deal but sticking around in case she misses something important. My mum doesn't play any further part in this story and given that we haven't spoken for many years she's unlikely to appear in any of my future writing. I realise I could have said more about her. There are plenty of other stories I could have shared from my childhood like the time my mum fell down the stairs and pretended she hadn't then got an infection in her untreated leg wound or the time she accidentally set the couch on fire or the time she screamed in my dad's face and told him to burn in hell then made him a cup of tea as though nothing had happened. All the time she forgot my name. But I'd rather not dwell on these details. As far as I know, she's built a life for herself away from me and my dad. I hope that she's happy. I apologise if she came off as one-dimensional. Maybe I'm being hard on myself. Or maybe I'm just another male writer who can't write female characters without resorting to cliché. In case you're wondering, I'll be using the saint trope later. Watch out for that. It's possible that Vanessa is the first woman I've been able to properly capture the essence of. It's a shame she left while we were just getting started. There's always Jenna, I suppose. I forgot about Jenna for a moment. If you don't know who I'm talking about, don't worry. You'll meet Jenna soon. You'll like her. Miss Angel really did talk a lot of sense. I spent many hours thinking about the questions she posed back at that hotel room. Do you want to live in a conflict-free world? My answer was always a resounding yes please. But what did a conflict-free world look like? It was almost impossible to imagine. Like what sort of activities would make up a typical day? I suppose we'd still need to get up and go to work. The difference is in a world in which... The competitive marketplace has been done away with. Every individual will be working towards a common goal, apart from the ones who have different ideas who will be working towards a different set of goals. That's fine, isn't it? As long as the goals don't clash in any way. If we're all allowed true freedom of thought and freedom of expression, our minds could wander off in any direction we like, provided that our hopes and aspirations don't include conflict. But that's not freedom of thought, though, is it? 
Under Miss Angel's proposals, we wouldn't even be allowed to kick a ball around unless the players are all on the same side. How would we account for all the people who've had conflict ingrained within them since birth? Realistically, if we were to form a society in which conflict doesn't exist, we'd have to start from scratch. Find an island somewhere on which to raise a new generation of children, protecting them from outside influence. I began reading up on philosophy, starting with the classical Greeks. A lot of it didn't make much sense. Even Plato's Republic had little to do with the kind of utopian ideals Miss Angel had spoken of. I persevered, working my way patiently along the shelf, eventually discovering elements of Miss Angel's teachings within a range of long-dead writers, Descartes, Marx, Russell, even Nietzsche in his more sensible moments. It was becoming clear that Miss Angel had done her homework. These weren't just some half-formed platitudes designed to entrap disillusioned young men. This was a painstakingly researched thesis. What would happen to storytelling in a conflict-free world? Three little pigs built a house and lived together until their old age. Goldilocks took a walk in the woods, passed by a cottage inhabited by three bears, then returned home. Cinderella lived a long, fruitful existence, raised by a community rather than a family, in a world in which patriarchy, monogamy and dictatorial power structures were alien concepts. She lost one of her shoes and then found it again. You may think I'm making fun of the idea of conflict-free stories. I actually think those three alternative fairy tales I just mentioned have the potential to be more relevant than the originals. It's often been said that conflict lies at the heart of good fiction, with the implication that a lack of conflict makes for a boring story. But that's simply not true. It's this kind of attitude that leads us to keep on writing endless variations on the same themes. Three siblings set aside their differences to fight against a violent predator. Girl does something bad and is punished. Abused stepdaughter battles against the odds and then marries into the aristocracy, etc. A conflict-free world may seem like an impossibility considering the number of wars being fought at this very moment. You can guarantee another person will be murdered somewhere in the world by the time I've finished this sentence. There goes another one. But times can change. The United Kingdom is far from perfect. It's a kingdom for a start. Yet, in 1965, we abolished the death penalty. In 1987, corporal punishment in schools came to an end. It's rarely spoken about, but violent crime in this country has been steadily decreasing year on year since 2001, with no clear explanation as to why that might be. It could even be argued that the only reason we continue to hate each other is that we're actively encouraged to do so by a government that relies on conflict to win votes, a media that relies on conflict to sell stories, and a range of social media platforms relying on conflict to keep us addicted to their apps. What if we all woke up one day and collectively wondered what would happen if we simply refused to continue engaging in these pointless playground tussles? That's not to say Britain is a world leader in optimism and positivity. I suspect that as a group we're among the most pessimistic nations on earth. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. If this world of ours is to have a future of any kind, the last thing we need is a sense of our glasses being half full. This was not always the case. In the mid-1990s, while I was reading books about the apocalypse in Vanessa's shop, there was a high-profile TV advertising campaign for the mobile phone company Orange. 
Their adverts were all about how great things were going to be in the future, largely thanks to the development of new technologies. Their slogan ran, The future's bright, the future's orange. I hardly watched anything on TV at the time and have only seen these commercials retrospectively online. Their message now seems desperately naive at best, which highlights one fundamental difference between now and then. There was indeed a time when you could declare the future's bright without appearing in some way deluded. It's true, I remember it. So what, we were optimistic, is that a bad thing? Yes, of course it is. The planet's doomed, mate. We all know this, even those of us who pretend not to. Whatever your willingness to engage with factual information happens to be, there's no denying that the planet being doomed is now a mainstream idea. When those orange adverts were broadcast proclaiming that mobile phones were going to save the world, the planet being doomed was not a mainstream idea. It should have been, but it wasn't. Call us pessimists if you like. I say it's evidence that we live in more enlightened times. Supposedly, this is the sort of thing Miss Angel arrived on the earth to warn us about. I'm not saying Miss Angel was the actual saviour of the world. She may have been a liar, but she spoke some real truth. I had no intention of joining Miss Angel's cult. I hoped that's not what Dennis had done. I was interested, that's all. I read all these philosophy books because Miss Angel had got me interested in the nature of our existence. The more I learnt, the more I appreciated Miss Angel. I liked her, in a way. If she hadn't made up that story about coming from another planet, maybe I'd have been swayed. I'm serious about conflict-free stories, by the way. I think they're a really good idea. I fully intend to write one soon. Obviously there's loads of conflict in the story you're listening to now. That's the way it has to be, I suppose. It's difficult to know if I'm capable of becoming a better person. Maybe if I tried harder I could. My main concern is becoming a better writer. I do believe I'm capable of that. I met Jenna on my first day at university in September 1998. She was five years older than me, a criminology PhD student. She introduced herself to me at the student union bar, then wouldn't stop talking. When she wasn't talking, she was listening to my awkward answers to her flurry of personal questions. I wasn't used to being spoken to like this. There was only one person who'd taken this kind of interest in me before, and I hadn't seen him for two years. I'd forgotten what it was like. I liked Jenna once she'd managed to drag me out of my shell. The alcohol probably helped. I hadn't had a drink since that night two summers ago when I'd thrown up in the street. I hoped I could handle it better this time. We ended up back at my halls of residence and went off to my bedroom for a smoke. That is to say, Jenna had a Cuban cigar on the go which I passively inhaled. She'd already made it clear that we weren't going to be in any way romantically involved. We were destined to be great friends, she told me. I still don't know how she managed to predict that. Was it a case of wishing the friendship into existence? Was the greatness of our friendship inevitable simply because Jenna had decided it was going to happen? To be honest, I was quite relieved that she didn't want to sleep with me. I had no idea what I was doing in that regard and wouldn't have wanted to show myself up in front of my mate. As it happens, I lost my virginity a couple of weeks later to a stranger I haven't seen since. It was still pretty embarrassing. So, who's this Dennis dude? she inquired, popping out a smoke ring. Did I mention Dennis? I said. Apparently I remind you of him. You do? Why? 
Exactly that, I said. Why? That's Dennis's favourite question. So, who is he? I told her everything I knew about Dennis Gleeson. Jenna had more questions, but she mostly sat back and listened. Suddenly, having spent the last few hours with much less to say than my companion, it was me doing all the talking. I'd been living with that story rattling the bars of its cage inside me for so long. All I needed to do was open that door and out the story came, fully formed and eager to please its receptive audience. The frustrating thing was, once I told her everything about Dennis's disappearance and made it clear that I had absolutely no idea where he was, or even if he was still living, the one thing Jenna wanted to hear more about was Dennis's joke. You know, the one about the party where one of the guests killed half the people there while the rest of them carried on enjoying themselves? You're telling me Dennis wrote that himself, she said. So he tells me, I said. So he told you that, like he came up with it all by himself. Don't you believe him? I'm not sure what to believe. All I have is your description of him. I have no way of knowing if he's trustworthy. Why are you so fixated on the joke? I said. Do you think there's a clue in there as to Dennis's whereabouts? No, why would there be? I'm just wondering why you keep going on about Dennis's joke. I'll tell you why, she said. It's because it's the best joke I have ever heard. That's why I'm asking if Dennis wrote it himself. Oh, I see, I said with a smile. I agree. It's the best joke I've ever heard, too. Even now, I can't explain what's so good about it or why I laugh every time I tell it. It's got everything, said Jenna. It's got slapstick. It's got social satire. It's got that punchline that's not even a punchline. How's it not a punchline? A punchline is supposed to reveal something new, Jenna explained. It's supposed to skewer or twist the information you've already been given. It's not that, it's this. The punchline to Dennis's joke doesn't do that. It's just a weird thing for that woman to have said. Describing a man who's just mowed down half a room full of people with a machine gun by saying there's something a bit off about him. We burst into a fit of giggles upon hearing the punchline again. You see what I mean, she gasped. It's perfect. But it's not just that. There's the element of social commentary. These people are so self-obsessed, they're perfectly happy to continue partying while the emergency services clear away all the bodies. It's really quite dark when you analyse the thing. Maybe that's your friend Dennis's doing, or it could just be the way you told it. I doubt I've improved it in some way, if that's what you're getting at, I said. I tried writing my own jokes based on the same format, but didn't have much luck. There was one about a dishwasher which was okay. Format, she said. Yeah, daft story involving extreme violence topped off by someone reacting to the events in an extremely understated manner. I see what you mean, Frankie, she said. She called me Frankie, by the way. It's okay, you'll get used to it. I reckon if we put our heads together we could really milk this thing. If there's an actual formula for this joke, a means of successfully replicating that same laugh again and again, we'd be millionaires. I don't think there's a way, I said. I've tried. Let me give it a go, she said. Give me a minute, Frankie. Silence, please. She puffed on her cigar for a while. Then she said, There's a man digging up weeds in his garden. He's only just moved to this new house and he's getting a feel for the place. He finds a spot of earth down the bottom of the garden that would be perfect for planting a couple of shrubs. He crouches down and pulls up a few scoops of soil with his trowel, just to see what the ground's like. As he digs a little deeper, the tip of his trowel makes contact with something hard beneath the earth that doesn't feel like rock. It makes a clanking kind of noise. He continues digging. 
he pulls up a small cylindrical tin. He knows exactly what this is before he opens it up. He buried one of these as a child, a time capsule. Whoever lived here previously must have left it behind. Or maybe it's been there longer than that. Maybe he's struck upon something 50 or 60 years old, some fascinating local relic. Intrigued, he opens up the container and pulls out a piece of paper. The paper is clean white, with no sign of age. The writing on the paper is that of a child. Seven or eight, he guesses. It says, to whom it may concern. If you found this message, it can mean one of two things. Either we escaped, or we are still here in this house. If it's option one, hopefully we're alive and well. If it's option two, well that means we're not. Our mother always threatened to bury our bodies beneath the floorboards where no one will find us for a hundred years. So that's the place to look. If you found this message, please take a look in the house. We hope it's option one. We really do. Thank you. The man drops the time capsule on the grass. He stoops to pick up the paper, but it's blown away in the wind. He'd have to jump over the neighbour's fence to chase after it. He decides against this approach. At this moment in time, he can hardly believe what he's read. He's not yet willing to believe this isn't just some childish prank. Nonetheless, the man knows what he has to do next. He races inside the house. Breathing slowly, he starts to remove the furniture from the living room, piling it up in the hallway and adjoining kitchen. He rolls up the carpet and prizes up one of the planks below. Seeing something he can't quite make out, he pulls up a second, third and fourth floorboard. There, just below him, are the bodies of a man and two children, floating in a shallow vat of formaldehyde. Resisting the urge to vomit, the man shoves the floorboards back into place, hastily exits into the hallway and calls the police. Is this an urgent inquiry, says the telephone operator. The man considers how he's supposed to respond to this question. Eventually he settles on, urgent? No, not really. Jenna cackled and stubbed the cigar out in the dish beside her. She was bent over double, her chest rattling. Are you okay? I said. <laughs> you don't think that's funny? She wheezed. Uh, I said, I can see what you're trying to do. I like the story. Would make a good premise for a horror movie. Jenna regained her composure and sat back again. Yeah, not as good as Dennis's one, I suppose, she said. I think we're getting distracted here, I said. Dennis isn't just a guy who told me a joke once. He's a friend of mine. More than a friend. He's a mentor. A father figure? Not really, I said. You mentioned your dad was a bit useless. That's true, but I don't think of Dennis in that way. I don't look up to him in the way you're supposed to look up to a parent. I liked Dennis because even though he was older and more experienced and better qualified as a writer, he always treated me like I was his equal. That's nice, she said. It was, I said, and now he's gone. This is the point. My friend has disappeared and I don't know what to do about it. Jenna's face stopped moving for a couple of seconds. Oh, she said, you want me to help you look for him? No, I said quickly, but then stopped to consider the question. It was true. The temptation had been there in the back of my mind all evening. I'd met someone who was smarter and wiser than me, who seemed to know a lot more about the ways of the world. I'd been attracted to Jenna for other reasons, but there it was, this feeling that Jenna could help me find Dennis. Sorry, I said suddenly. Look, I know we've only known each other for a few hours, but... Doesn't matter, she butted in. I told you, we're destined to be great friends. I just don't want to ask too much of you, I said. I don't want to ask you to help me to find Dennis, but also, I need help. I think you could help me. No problem, she said. 
Anything for you, mate? She yawned and added, Not right now, though, Frankie. I'm tired. I have a project to work on tomorrow, so... No rush, I said. Another time. We have all the time in the world, you and I. She kissed me on the cheek and lay down on the floor. Thank you for listening. If you're interested, there's the footnote section coming up after the theme song. I can't tell you anything about it. It's only for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. Please take a look at my website, frankburton.co.uk, where you'll find The Green Room, a webcomic about celebrities in the afterlife. There's also the Ragbag Rambler video series and much, much more besides. My other podcast is called I Like The Sound and we've got some great stuff coming up on that very soon indeed. I will see you soon. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber, let's misbehave. There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous, let's misbehave. When Adam won Eve's hand, he wouldn't stand for teasing. He didn't care about those apples out of season. They say the spring means just one thing to little lovebirds. We're not above birds. Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. If you'd be just so sweet and only meet your fate, dear, would be the great event of 1928, dear. Let's misbehave. Welcome to the footnotes. Here we are again. Now, I'm going to try and keep this brief because last time I went on for way too long. I think the <laughs> it was almost an hour's long, the last footnotes. And there literally weren't any footnotes from what I recall. <laughs> it was just me going off, going off on one again, talking about other writers and my critical take on various different things. But I, I also said some positive things in the last episode, particularly about Carol Hill and Kate Beaton two writers who I greatly admire. So there is that, but I think altogether, while I've been recording these footnotes sections for this podcast, I do feel like I've been really quite negative about lots of different things. So I'm going to try and knock that on the head a bit. It's just that this is a good kind of platform for, for me to let a few things out because it's the optional extra bit. And I feel like 
Anyone who doesn't want to listen to it doesn't have to. So I can just go off on one a bit without holding things back. So maybe I shouldn't hold things back. I sometimes feel bad afterwards, after I've been overly critical of other writers. But I think at the same time, there are things that ought to be said about these people. And the people that I'm talking about are big enough to handle it. You know, they really are. They, they, They can take a lot. What do they care what I think of them anyway? It's not going to get back to them because very, very few people listen to this podcast and I don't go on about it in in any other form. The content of this footnote section isn't mentioned anywhere. It's not in the show notes. I, I haven't written down what I'm going to be talking about in the footnotes. It's like a little secret section. And there aren't any bits of it that I've posted on social media. Oh, here, here's a clip of me slagging off Salmon Rusty out of context. You know, I don't want to do that. So this is just like our own little private club. Me and the hardcore enthusiasts who are listening all the way through. Greetings to you all. Uh, <laughs> do get in touch, by the way, and let me know that you've been listening to these because it's difficult to get a handle on how many people who actually do listen to the footnotes bit maybe nobody does who knows well i know that some people do because some people have interacted with me about things that i've said in the footnotes sections which is great i'd please do keep that coming because i love your correspondence you can get in touch with me via my website that is the best way of doing it i do use social media but i don't i only have a token presence on twitter and instagram I'm not going to call Twitter X. I'm just not going to do it. I'm calling it Twitter for the rest of its life. However long that may be. (laughs) By the time this goes out, maybe Twitter has completely collapsed. Who knows? But yeah, let's crack on. We've actually got some footnotes this time. uh, Various different cultural references and also references to the ragbag universe. Of course, Jenna being the big one. The return of Jenna, who was basically the central character in the novel Getting Away With It. So this part of Endless Impossible overlaps directly with the opening of Getting Away With It, the novel. The opening of Getting Away With It starts with Jenna and Frank meeting in the student union bar. But you get to see a a different bit of that meeting in Endless Impossible. In uh, Getting Away With It, you don't see what happened when they went back to Frank's room. They talk about it later on in the book. They talk about, oh yeah, that night... You took me up to your room, you told me that story about Dennis Gleeson. So that's all in. Dennis Gleeson is first mentioned in Getting Away With It, which is a while back, isn't it? It's a nice little link to that book. And this bit in particular, I'm very pleased with. They they overlap very nicely, I think. So if you haven't listened to Getting Away With It or read Getting Away With It, then get yourself on it. Jenna is a great character, of course, and it's very nice to have her back. So do also enjoy this episode and also the next episode in which Jenna is going to be featuring very heavily. So, great character, great to have her back. Welcome back. (laughs) There's a reference to the Orange adverts from the 1990s. If you're in the UK and of a certain age, you may remember those. Uh, I've commented on them already. Uh, The future's bright, the future's orange. It all looks a bit silly now. You can watch them on YouTube if you're interested in seeing how... (laughs) kind of slightly misjudged those adverts were which brings me on and now I'm going to have to start being negative again Uh, we've talked about the eels 
song, Susan's House, and gone into a, what I think we can all agree are fairly misogynistic lyrics to that song. It's from the album Beautiful Freak, and I made reference to E's autobiography. Um, E's real name is Mark Oliver Everett. So he's written this memoir using his real name. It's called Things the Grandchildren Should Know. <laughs> but <laughs> I just realised that have I been calling it Things the Grandkids Should Know? Have I been doing that the whole time? I think that's in the uh, <laughs> I think that's in the audio. I'm not going to change it now, but I'll change it for the print edition of the book, which isn't out yet. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think I name-checked the autobiography a couple of times, and I'm pretty sure in the, the text it's currently written down as things the grandkids should know. It is not called that. It is called things the grandchildren should know. Oh, goodness me. Uh, <laughs> I was actually very kind. I think I was actually very kind to Mark Oliver Everett in the section that you heard earlier on where I talked about Susan's house. Obviously, I was critical of that song, but I think I was rather kind to Mark Oliver Everett. Uh, particularly, I said that I recommended this book, Things the Grandchildren Should Know. And it is a good book. It's it's very well written anyway. One thing that I didn't say, and I will say now, is that he comes across, first of all, he comes across as a man who has a few issues that he definitely needs to seek some therapy for and I suspect that he hasn't done so and for some reason his editor just let these things slide and let these things go into his book without <laughs> without questioning them I, I presume and it's very odd some of the things that that Mark Oliver Everett says about his family now the thing about his family is that it's kind of a tragic story this because it's he it talks about his childhood and he talks about the death of his father. And as a point of interest, this is a very strange thing as well. Multiverse theory. Okay? We all know multiverse theory. Yeah, it feels like multiverse theory has always been around. And it hasn't been around for that long. And multiverse theory was first properly formulated and put together by Mark Oliver Everett's father. I read this and I was like, What? And I had to look it up just to make sure he wasn't joking. It's absolutely true. This guy was responsible for multiverse theory. And yeah, so he talks about his father's death and he has one sibling and his mother and his, he talks about his mother's death and tragically his sister died young also. So he, for a long time now, has been the, the only surviving sort of member of his immediate family. And so he's reflecting upon this and he's talking very candidly about these three losses, these three deaths. Yeah, so it's quite complex, really, because something very odd and Freudian is going on. He talks about his sister. He describes his sister in a very highly sexualized way. He describes his sister's breasts in a very, very creepy sort of... On more than one occasion, he talks about his sister's sex life, the way that his sister looks, the way that she dresses, the way that her breasts look. And it's very, very odd. And at one point, and he doesn't elaborate upon this, he just says it and then moves on. He says, I am completely obsessed with my mother's breasts. 
And he doesn't say anything else about it, I don't think. He just moves on and he just throws it into the conversation as though it's nothing. I honestly think he needs some therapy. I do. I really, really do. I'm not I'm not trying to make fun of him. I'm actually concerned for his welfare and his mental well-being. He's obviously been through a lot in his life. He's written a book about it, which is cathartic and therapeutic in its own way. But perhaps he needs to do more than that. Perhaps he does. Also, I'm afraid to say he doesn't come across as being a very nice person either. He doesn't. He's very snarky. He's really quite arrogant. And at one point in particular, he says something horrible about John Legend. John Legend has done nothing to him. This story is its so Alan Partridge, it's unbelievable. If you don't know Alan Partridge, you may not if you're outside the UK. It's Steve Coogan's character who he played on the TV and is very, very funny. This kind of old TV personality who's not on the TV anymore and is very bitter about it. And he he had this catchphrase that he wrote in, in his autobiography. He ended all of his stories with, needless to say, I had the last laugh. <laughs> and he keeps on doing this. It's kind of like a running joke in, in the Alan Partridge series on the TV. Okay, so Mark Oliver Everett is unintentionally waded deeply into Partridge waters with some of his stories. There's an account on twitter called accidental partridge and there's the it's it's very very funny you should check out accidental partridge there's there's so there's so many of these things <laughs> of uh people unintentionally sounding alan partridge-esque yeah th- this story about john legend right so they're on later with jules holland which is the bbc music show jules holland's show is recorded in this big massive studio he's got all these different musical acts at different like corners of the studio and they're all in the same space with their instruments set up and that so it's all live music a proper music show nobody's like miming or anything like that so mark everett or eels or whoever it was was on this show and john legend was in another part of the studio and mark oliver everett was smoking a cigar in the studio because he's a cigar smoker and he doesn't care about it, right? There's a picture of him on the back of the book with a cigar in his mouth and a little scowl on his face. <laughs> I think he thinks he looks cool. He does not. That's just my opinion. Maybe you think he looks cool. But anyway, he's smoking a cigar in the studio. John Legend sends one of his PAs across to have a quiet word with Mark Oliver Everett to say, could you please put that cigar out? And instead of just putting the cigar out and apologising as a normal person would, his account of this incident, it just goes into this really kind of out of order like rant about John Legend and what a cocky young upstart this John Legend is. And, oh, I see a lot of this in the music industry. Sending one of his staff over to ask me to put my cigar out instead of having the guts to come over there and talk to me himself. (laughs) And it's like, look, mate, maybe John Legend felt a little bit awkward about it, about the confrontation. Maybe he's not a confrontational person. But he found cigar smoke distracting in his personal space when he's a professional vocalist, as are you, by the way. And it's a perfectly reasonable request. You might not know this as a cigar smoker, but cigars absolutely stink. 
and you're smoking it indoors. Fair play, this is like 15 years ago when you were allowed to do such things. But you must be fully aware that cigars really do stink. They absolutely stink to high heaven. It is perfectly reasonable for John Legend to get someone to have a quiet word with you and ask you politely if you can put it out. And then say no more about it. Why, do, why are you putting this in your autobiography? Do you think you're coming off well from this, mate? I don't think you are. And then he ends this section off. And this is the snarkiest thing anyone has ever said, I think. He ends this story by saying, oh, and by the way, Van Morrison was sat around the corner and he's an actual legend. <laughs> now, that hasn't aged particularly well either, knowing what we know now about Van Morrison, who has gone completely off the deep end into the deep waters of nonsensical COVID conspiracies. We know this about Van Morrison now. Obviously, this is an old story. But also, what a horrible thing to say. I don't claim to be a fan of John Legend's music. But come on, he's good at what he does, isn't he? He's a very talented man. He's a talented vocalist. He can write a good song. I'm not into that style, you know, and he's very, very mainstream and that's that's not the sort of thing that I would listen to. But even so, he's not just some guy off the street, is he? He's good at what he does. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think Mark Oliver Everett came off particularly well from that. And the, also, the, I was quite kind to him when I said that he was apologetic about Susan's house. Because if you look into it, he's never actually expressed regret over the lyrics of Susan's house. He never has. I can't find any like recorded evidence of his, him having said that. In fact, as a matter of fact, he refuted it recently. In um, just a couple of months ago, he was there was an interview with Mark Oliver Everett in the Guardian. I thought I'd check it out because I was doing a bit of research around this thing that I'd written about him, and it was like a question and answers thing. Readers of the Guardian were sending in questions to ask Mark Oliver Everett, and one of the questions was something like, "You've said in the past that you regret writing those lyrics to Susan's house. Do you still feel that way?" That's the gist of the question. And his response was, no, I've never said that. I don't know why I would. I changed the lyrics for the live version of the song and we perform different lyrics when we perform that song live. But I don't know why I would express regret about the original ones, about the original lyrics. So a complete denial and a complete rebuttal of the idea that there is anything wrong with that song. Which I suppose is what he has to do from a commercial point of view. I think Beautiful Freak is presumably their biggest selling album and it continues to be listened to by lots and lots of people. He has a vested interest in protecting that work and defending that work. He just has to stand behind it now. He's recorded it. It was on this very, very successful album. Clearly, from my point of view, it is quite a misogynistic song and it's a reflection on the culture of the time that it was released without any question. But I think it is a shame that he's doing that. It's a shame that he's defending that work. I think he should just be honest about it and come out and say that even if he stands by it, he should he should acknowledge that a lot of people are going to find this offensive now. Presumably a lot of people found it offensive then also. And you can accuse me of being overly woke in this response. <laughs> Go ahead. You can say that if you like. I just think that would be the decent thing for him to do, wouldn't it? I don't think I'm being unreasonable. 
So that's Mark Oliver Everett. There's also references to other musicians' autobiographies, so highly recommend these. Jarvis Cocker's one. Jarvis Cocker wrote a book called Good Pop, Bad Pop, and it's about the early years of pulp. I presume he's going to bring out a sequel at some point because Good Pop, Bad Pop stops at the point before he becomes famous. Yeah, I think it's a great book. Jarvis is a great storyteller, and it's written without any sense of self-aggrandizement, which is what you would usually get <laughs> in a rock musician's autobiography. Uh, <laughs> for example, Mark Oliver Everett's one is rather self-aggrandizing, and Jarvis Cocker's one is the opposite of that. I think the three things to watch out for in a musician's autobiography they do occur with some regularity. So one of them is this kind of false modesty thing. They talk about their humble origins in a way as to suggest that, oh, look where I came from and look at me now. I'm this big superstar. Look what my childhood was like. I was just like a normal guy. So <laughs> false modesty, self-aggrandizement, as in describing yourself in such a way as to make yourself sound much more important than you actually are. I think most musicians' memoirs are produced as a kind of PR exercise in order to sell more records, if I'm being cynical about it. I presume that's what they are there for. Whereas Jarvis Cocker's Good Pop, Bad Pop isn't like that at all because he doesn't even get round to talking about his commercial success. The book ends like before he becomes famous. So it's just about his early years. We avoid the self-aggrandizement side of things from that point of view but also he's he's a very self-deprecating character anyway so i presume in the next volume of his memoir if that does appear then i think he'll be rather <laughs> genuinely modest about his own success and he seems like the sort of person who is able to put things in perspective now whereas he can reflect upon because he was very very famous for a few years like inescapably famous in the uk and now i think he's he's settled into a a space in which he is a lot more comfortable. He's become more of kind of a weirdo outsider, which is how he started. And I think he's a lot more comfortable with that. I don't think Jarvis was necessarily all that comfortable with fame. I know that he sought it and I know that he wanted it and he had big ambitions about being a big pop star and he got what he wanted. He, he achieved that dream. I don't know that much about kind of what happened, but I, I know that there were drugs involved. There was a, there was a lot of... Uh, issues with a band and stuff like that and long story short I don't think he took to fame particularly well and then in the later years when things settled down he's kind of found this space for himself where he can be this kind of like I say weirdo outsider which is the best place for Jarvis Cocker to be but yeah good pop bad pop is just a, a really great book I, I recommend that and I, I've also made reference to Tracy Thorne's books Tracy Thorne from uh, Everything But The Girl of course She's a great writer also. So I've got a couple of them yet to read. Her first memoir was called Bedsit Disco Queen. And then there was a second memoir called Naked at the Albert Hall. I've read her two other books. Uh, one of them is called Another Planet, A Teenager in Suburbia. And that's about her being a teenager in suburbia, believe it or not. It's just a very captivating account of having a life in which nothing much happens, which is a really great trick to pull off. And it takes real talent to do it I think so for that reason I would say that she's a great writer she wrote a biography of Lindy Morrison of the go-betweens called my rock and roll friend 
and uh, I, I can't say I'm a particular fan of the Go-Betweens. I never really liked their music, but it, this Tracy Thorne's book about Lindy Morrison is brilliant, and it's just a great story, I think. And it's about the experiences of female musicians in a male-dominated music scene. So it gives you the kind of insight into the music industry that you don't always get, I would say. What else do we have references to? Let me see. Is that it? Oh, um, The Sound of Life's Unspeakable Beauty, yeah, which is a, an extraordinary book about violin making. And um, I included a, an extract from it on the I Like the Sound podcast. I'm just typing it in because I've forgotten the, uh, the author's name. If you can hear me clip-clapping around on my keyboard, let's see. I'm probably going to say the author's name wrong. It's Martin Schlesk. It's actually a religious book, believe it or not, which is uh, odd for me to be recommending, I suppose. But it's looking at the Amazon page here, uh, Martin Schlesk, The Sound of Life's Unspeakable Beauty. It's described uh, in the blurb as one of the greatest luthiers of all time revealed the secrets of his profession. Presumably luthier is the name for a violin maker, is it? And how each phase of handcrafting a violin can point us towards our calling, our true selves and the overwhelming power and the gentleness of God's love. I don't recall there being that much about the God stuff in there. It's, it's just a really nice story, I think, this account of being a violin maker. It's just a, a really nice like, insight into somebody else's life from a world that I personally know nothing about. Yeah, if you want to know about violin making, that is definitely your source to go to, whether you are Christian or not. I am not, and I enjoyed the book. Take that, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> now, we've uh, taken another couple of pot shots at Roald Dahl in this <laughs> couple of snarky pot shots at Mr. Dahl and his uh, writing about women, in particular, Roald Dahl's Matilda. We've covered Roald Dahl, haven't we? It's just, I think it's worth pointing out how deeply misogynist a lot of his work is. Because there's all this talk about, oh, they're trying to censor Roald Dahl, they're kind of trying to shut Roald Dahl down, change all the stuff from his books, leave it alone, that sort of thing. It's all very well leaving it alone, but you have to just contend with certain passages that are, are really uncomfortable. And I think parents are going to feel increasingly uncomfortable reading these passages to their children in today's world. It's not because today's world has been taken over by some kind of left-wing conspiracy that wants to shut down all forms of thought. It is because these passages in these Roald Dahl books are just pretty horrible. Objectively speaking, they are. Even the most fervent free speech advocate, as they would call themselves, would probably feel quite uncomfortable reading this stuff to their kids. If you look at James and the Giant Peach, for example, this is just an example, there's lots of other ones. Have a look at the opening sections of James and the Giant Peach and the descriptions of Ant Sponge and Ant Spiker, who are these two horrible women who are bringing up this character, James because his parents have died, and they're constantly being referred to as these fat, ugly, horrible women. And the implication being that they are fat and ugly because they are horrible people. And this is the crux of the matter, really. It, it, ha it happens very, very regularly throughout Roald Dahl's fiction. But it's not just about him, it's about the culture of the time. This is a reflection of the culture of the time of his writing, because... Lots and lots and lots of children's books were written like this. And it wasn't that long ago that it stopped. 
I was browsing through a children's book from, it was published in 2005, which, relatively speaking, is, is quite recently. And the bad guy in this book was constantly being referred to as being horribly fat. And uh, any kind of description of this bad guy who was in pursuit of the good guys, it was all about him dragging his enormous fat belly after him. I mean, this has stopped now. You no longer get these descriptions of these sorts of characters in children's books. It doesn't happen anymore. And it's not a politically correct conspiracy. It's just the right thing to do. For one thing, you know, fat children read books too. They do. They read books too. I mean, it wouldn't be right even if fat children didn't read books. But fat children do read books because children read books. And... Objectively speaking, just describing someone as being horribly fat and ugly and heavily implying that they are fat and ugly because they are a horrible person, that's just a pretty despicable thing to do. I know despicable is quite a strong word to use, but it is. And I'm happy to say that it is part of our culture that we have left behind now. It's no longer part of the culture of publishing to allow these things to be printed. I'm not saying that all the children's books that are being released today are great books by any means they're not necessarily great quality there's some really terrible ones have you ever read anything by david walliams for example (laughs) absolutely horrible but it's not offensive in the way that roald dahl's books are offensive but they're very deliberately dahl-esque and that i include (laughs) i i can say this now i included a piece that i wrote in the original draft of the Roald Dahl section from a couple of episodes ago that included me making fun of David Williams's books and basically saying that he, he owes a huge debt to Roald Dahl, who himself is a pretty horrible writer. Also, I may have kind of implied that David Williams uses a ghostwriter, which I have no evidence for, but, but <laughs> there is a persistent rumour that he does. <laughs> that, that's all. And, and I didn't want to include that because... Again, I I don't go in for conspiracy theories and I I don't go making claims without any evidence. I do not have any evidence that David Williams uses a ghostwriter other than if he doesn't use one, then he must write his books very, very quickly because at one point he was a very, very big TV star. He was always on the TV. He was never off. How did he have time to write all these books as well? Either he stayed up late at night or he wrote them very, very quickly, which would explain why they're so bad. (laughs) I'm not mincing my words about David Williams. He's really not a very good writer. Or he he has some help, as a a lot of celebrity authors do. But, uh, you know, again, I can say that in the footnote section because, you know, it's only for us hardcore, isn't it? It's only for us hardcore lot. Uh, Again, I've gone on for too long, haven't I? I'm just looking at the counter here. Keep a lid on it, Burton. It's because I had a lot of, of footnotes to go through this time. I think that's what it is. But, yeah, the only other ones that I've got... Are, um, oh, there's uh, references and factual information about a decrease in violent crime. And it's very, very interesting, this. I, I won't go on about it because I've been going on for too long. But yeah, I think from memory, I think I think it's something like 2001 that violent crime in the UK has been steadily decreasing year on year. And nobody has a, has a clear explanation as to why that is. Fascinating, that, isn't it? I'm really interested in that. I would like to find out more about this uh, and see what studies have been done into why there's been a decrease in violent crime. For one thing, you wouldn't know that 
to watch the news, would you? Or to, to hear people talk about crime in this country. You wouldn't know necessarily that violent crime has gone down because it seems to be a little known fact, but it is a fact that's completely... There is no questioning these statistics. These are official statistics and you can't manipulate them. Either it's gone down or it hasn't and it has gone down. It's as simple as that. So anyway, let's rattle through these last ones. Some obscure characters for you here. Plato, Descartes, Marx, Russell and Nietzsche. Whoever they are. Uh, (laughs) What shall I say about these guys? I don't think there's anything... I can say about them that hasn't already been said. I I would highly recommend Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy. If you're interested in kind of getting into philosophy, reading a bit of philosophy and you don't know where to start, where do I begin? I would recommend Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy. That is a really interesting book and a really great introduction to that subject. And from there on, you can figure out which bits you are particularly interested in and go from there. Because Russell gives like a, this really great overview of uh, various different things. Obviously, it's Western philosophy. If you want Eastern philosophy, you go elsewhere. And I wouldn't be able to tell you uh, an, an equivalent of the Bertrand Russell book for Eastern philosophy. Maybe there isn't one. Maybe somebody needs to write one. A good overview of philosophies from the non-Western tradition. But whether that exists or not, or whether I should write it myself... I'd have to do a lot of research because it is definitely not my field of expertise. As interesting as it would be, I would have to do about 20 or 30 years of research. And in a way, they should probably give the job to somebody who's already an expert in it. That's what I would say. (laughs) I really am just rambling now. I really am just talking nonsense at you, aren't I? Um, I I really ought to go. Um, We've got... (laughs) How many more of these have I got to do? It's episode five. I think there's going to be nine uh, episodes altogether. I've got to do four more of these. I really am going to try and keep it short next time because they're, they're going on for too long. <laughs> and I, just, I just can't control myself. Somehow I just can't control what comes out of my mouth. It's therapy. It's, it's as long as a normal therapy session would be. This this is it. It's just It seems to be like I'm doing like virtually an hour for each one. And yeah, I'm just getting a lot of things off my chest and it's of limited benefit to anybody else is how it feels. I mean, you may be getting a lot out of this, who knows? But yeah, I'm going to stop talking now because (laughs) I just can't help myself otherwise. So thank you very much and I will see you next time. Bye.